You teach it. Let your Holy Spirit lead, guide, and direct and help us just to learn to stop the world right now and to say, how can we learn to grow in you, to be encouraged, to be uplifted, just to walk in your grace and mercy? Thank you for this in your name. Amen. Now, we have been in Ecclesiastes here for three weeks, and I kind of have this standard introduction I've been doing about Ecclesiastes, explaining how this is Solomon that wrote this, writing this from a backslidden state condition. This is a very dark book, but at the same time as you go through it, it's very encouraging as well, because you're seeing the pit that he's in. But I also think of the passage in Romans where there's hope. Now, there's certain words here that are repeated a lot. Vanity meaningless. There's also words repeated like under the sun, where any times he starts talking about under the sun, it means he only has his focus on what's going on here on earth. He's not thinking about anything eternal or heavenly. Now, the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes is kind of depressing. There's a lot of whining. There's a lot of moaning in it. It changes a little bit here now. It changes a little bit. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the whining and moaning is gone. It will still pop up. But what you're seeing is a little bit of a progression through this book. It's almost like the first six chapters are him venting, ranting, raving, whining, complaining. Why am I even born? Why am I even here? I wish I was dead. There you go. That's the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes. Now in chapter 7, you start to see some little bit different changes. He'll use the word vanity a little bit, but not as much. He'll use the phrase under the sun a little bit, but not as much. There'll still be some things that pop up. But this almost starts to read a little bit like the book of Proverbs. And that's who also wrote Proverbs was Solomon. So I need you to keep your hand in Proverbs, which is really easy because it's just the book right to the left of you. So we're going to be going in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes a lot. Now there's still some moments where you want to say, Solomon, you're getting back down in the pit here a little bit. Buck up. But you're going to see a little bit of a change here with that being said. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, interesting passage. I just want to focus on the first one there. A good name is better than precious ointment. The name. Now, when it's talking about your name, it's not talking about your literal name. You cannot do anything about that. Some of you have names, have middle names, etc., that you want not a single person to know. And I always find it fascinating when I end up doing your funeral. It's like, oh, I did not know that was your actual name. So, because it's in the obituary. You can't do anything about it at that time. You can't change your name. You can't. That's just what it is. You also can't change the nicknames that sometimes people give you. Now, the name here he's talking about is not your name. It's your reputation. A good name. If you're in Proverbs, just look at Proverbs 22 with me. Proverbs 22, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. That people have a good name for you, a good reputation, Proverbs 22, verse 1. This is what he's trying to say. He's trying to say a good name is better than anything. People know you, people trust you, people respect you. The New Testament uses a word called blameless. You are blameless. Nothing sticks to you. Somebody wants to make a comment about you, and as they're saying it, it doesn't even stick. It doesn't make sense. They know your nature. They know your reputation. That's not who you are or what you would be. They try to say something else, and other people's like, no, I know him. That's not him. Now, the problem is sometimes what they speak is truth, and it hurts us, and it offends us. But what Solomon is saying here in Proverbs and also in Ecclesiastes, your reputation, what people think of you, means a lot. Now, I want to say two statements that are completely contradictory. First statement, I don't care what people think about me. But at the same time, I care what people think about me. Now, let me explain that. I don't care what people think about me because the only thing that matters is being a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. 
only thing that matters is hearing, well done, good and faithful servant when you die. So I don't care what people think. But at the same time, you care what people think because that's also part of your witness. And so when your name is brought up, you want it to be a name that people stop and say, hey, that guy, he loves the Lord. Hey, that guy... He's going to be biblical. He's going to be moral. He's going to be pure. He wouldn't lie. He wouldn't cheat. So you do care to an extent because what matters is it's your witness. Think of the passage in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 16, it says, Let your good works shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorify you, glorify your Father in heaven. So in one matter, it doesn't matter what people think. But in the other matter, it does because you are also representing Christ. And it's not that you want the glory. It's not that you want the attention. But, Lord, I really want to represent you and all that I do and all that I say. Now, look at the rest of this, the second half of chapter, uh, first verse. In the day of death, in the day of one's birth, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Boy, look what he says. Death and sadness is better. He's saying death and sadness is better. Now, this is one I can relate to. I do a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals. And any time I do a funeral, I always go home. And I always say, Lord, I want to love my wife more. I want to love my kids more. I don't want to waste any time with meaningless things because I see death. There is some truth to what he's saying here. When you go to the house of mourning, it makes you think. I've done funerals for as young as 18 months, as old as 99 years. I've done funerals of people I've graduated from high school with. And you stop and you think, that that's me. That's the same age. So when you see this house of mourning, it's supposed to stop and make you think about verse 2, the end. Death. Now, this is not supposed to be discouraging and depressing. It's supposed to make you stop and think, this does something for me. That's why it says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. One translation says, sorrow refines us. See, the problem is we look at the word better. Verse 2 says better to go to the house of mourning. Verse 3 says sorrow is better than laughter. We look at it being the same word in the Hebrew. It's two completely different words. The second word in verse 3 actually means to be refined. So when you are in sorrow, it's training you. It's actually encouraging you. It's, It's making you better. We don't like tough times. We hate trials. We hate tribulations. We do everything we can to get out of them. And when they start to happen, we start praying, Lord, make it quit and make it stop soon. Where the Lord says, actually, these trials and tribulations are refining you. They're making you stronger. They're making you better. So that's why he's saying in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. It's refined. Now, that's not what you want to hear. That's not what I want to hear on a Wednesday night. But there's truth to this. So when you start going through difficult times, the Lord is good and the Lord does good. That's what Psalm says. Romans 8, 28 says that in all things, God works for the good. It is true. Lord, you are training me, refining me, helping me grow and go deeper in you. But it just doesn't mean I necessarily like it or enjoy it. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or pleasure. He's saying there's more wisdom in learning from mourning, sadness, and death than there is from pleasure. Because we can learn from this. We can grow from this. Now he starts this long straight here. What else is better? Verse 5. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now that's not one we like much either. Keep your hand in Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 9 verse 8. Proverbs 9 verse 8. 
Part of the way you show that you're a wise man is you can accept rebuke. Proverbs 9, verse 8, Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Think about that. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. This is exactly what it's saying. There's wisdom in being corrected. Now, there's a whole other teaching on how to biblically correct people, doing it in a spirit of gentleness, letting the Holy Spirit lead, etc. But there's wisdom in listening to someone and say, Listen, I don't like what they're hearing. It stings, it hurts. But is this something that I need to hear? Rather than, verse 5, the song of fools. Keep telling me how great I am. No, sometimes we need to be rebuked. Sometimes we need to be admonished. I'll give you just a quick story. We do devotions at home and we have all five boys. And for some reason, when you try to put all five boys together, uh, people just start touching each other. So we try to spread them out. So the other day, God bless Kenan, my third. He was just in a little bit of an ornery mood. So I said, Kenan... I'm going to use the biblical word here. I'm going to admonish you. I'm warning you. You're not in trouble yet. But I can tell if you sit by your brother, it is not going to go good. So I put him in the far corner. The far corner. As far away as I could from the brothers. In the middle of devotion, somehow he got up and moved over to his brothers. I don't know what happened. So I said, I'm admonishing you. Go back to the corner. Not in trouble yet. But I'm admonishing you. So he goes back. He gets through devotions. God bless him. Lias had a plate of uh, apples and peanut butter. Kenan's walking by. He got through it. Walks over to Elias, sticks his finger in Elias's peanut butter, and just starts to eat it. We just sit there and say, Kenan, what are you doing? He just goes, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I said I admonished you twice. There's no teaching point. I'm just counseling. The point is that the sin nature, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Listen, you don't want to be corrected. You don't want to rebuke. I get that. But Proverbs is saying it's wise to stop and say, is this person saying something that I need to hear? And I need to pay attention. I need to listen to. Wisdom hears the rebuke rather than verse 5, hearing the song of fools. What else is better? Verse 6, for like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. It's continue that theme. Foolishness, laughter, is just vanity. doesn't mean you can't laugh and have a good time. This is foolishness. Please note, when you read through the Old Testament, one of the biggest insults you could give somebody is to call them a fool. That's like, that's like the biggest insult to give them. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. So now he says a few other things that are better. First thing, rebuke. Well, first thing was death and mourning is better because it teaches you life. Better to be rebuked, verse 5. What else is better? Verse 8 and 9, patience. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Are you a patient person? Verse 8. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Keep your hand here in Ecclesiastes. Back to Proverbs again. Proverbs 16, please. Let's talk about patience and our temper. Proverbs 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. We live in a world where we, we are impressed with intimidating people sometimes. 
how intimidating they look, how they can roar and growl. And we try to intimidate. Have you ever done that as a parent or maybe in a conversation with someone? You're all of a sudden talking and you lower your voice a couple octaves. You almost get this demonic growl to you type thing. What are we doing? We're just trying to act big and intimidating, etc. No. Verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. God says the most impressive people are the people that hold their tongue, take a rebuke, and control their temper. Now, that's not the standard we have in the world today. But from a biblical standpoint, you want people that can hold their tongue, take a rebuke, and control their temper. When you see a man or a woman completely lose their temper, once you're through maybe the little bit of shock, fear, whatever, you walk away and you think, that's just utterly embarrassing for them. They just completely lost control. Do they think that they're great and mighty because they can yell and say impressive strings of words that no one else needs to hear? They can punch drywall. They can throw things. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it just really is. Better to be slow in anger is better than the mighty. This is what he's saying back here. and Back to now in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This idea of the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So you can get angry, sinful anger, because there's non-sinful anger. The Bible does say that. It's not a sin to be angry. It's what you do while you're angry that's a sin. So fine, you can have sinful anger. The Bible says, congratulations, you're a fool. Think about that. So fine, you're impatient. No, the Bible says that's wrong. Look at just the little life lessons. Learn from death and mourning. Learn to listen to a rebuke. Learn to be patient. Learn to control your anger. And then verse 10 is a fun one. Do not say why were the former days better than these, for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Don't be that person that lives in the past. Oh, do you remember how great it was years ago? Oh, that was just great, wasn't it? What about the here and now? Oh, let's just talk about the past. I firmly do believe this. If I ever run into somebody that tells me high school was the best days of their life, I really feel bad for them. I really honestly do. I think the best days of your life is the day you're living in right now. Because I firmly do believe that if God is good and does good, and all things are good for His glory, then this is where He wants me to be. I had a moment the other day, I thought about my wife and I had been living in her house now for 10 years. And I thought about when I used to come home from church. And at that time, we only had two kids and they would both take naps at the same time. And so I'd come home about that time and Dawn would have, she'd have like this music, this praise music playing in the background. I'd come in and one would be in his bed sleeping and the other one would be in his bed sleeping. You just came into this calm home and quiet we only had two kids everything was in order it was clean and i just had this envisionment of how amazing it was it was like leave it to beaver dawn's got the little skirt thing on she's making supper it was just perfect but then i stopped and i thought what was going through church at that time oh yeah that's the guy that wrote me that letter yeah I remember that. Oh, yeah, that's the family that got upset and and left. And, oh, yeah, that's the guy that called me up. and It's like you forget. (laughs) You forget. And what Solomon is saying here in wisdom is don't live in the past. Where you're at is where God wants you to be at this moment. He's sovereign. Accept that. Rejoice in that. There's good in it. And so don't sit there and just keep living in the past of anything like that. But realize that this is good. It may not be your definition of good. But God is good and does good. Lord, I'm going to look for the good that's right here rather than living in the past. So this first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. What's better? Death and sadness is better because it teaches you life lessons. Rebuke is better. Patience is better. Controlling your temper is better. Not living in the past is better. Now before we move on, we got any quick questions, comments here about anything before we move on, continue our study through Ecclesiastes 7.
Okay. So what else is better? Verse 11, wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. What a neat verse. Wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. Verse 12, do you catch what he's saying? He's saying if you have money, it can be helpful. Now we believe that. We're not going to get into the teaching here of the sin of money. This is just a statement of fact. If you have money and you don't have to worry about bills and you don't have to worry about things like that, that is a bit of a defense. There is some peace of mind in money. But what he says here is the biblical truth. Look at the rest of verse 12. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Money can't give you life. Wisdom gives you life. It's interesting when he keeps talking about wisdom giving life. If you're a note taker, mark this down. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's towards the end, but I encourage you to read the whole chapter. The Bible says that Jesus became wisdom for us. So when I read that and it says right here, but wisdom gives life, 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus has became wisdom for us. So now he just kind of sums this up, verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. He says, listen, when things are going good, be joyful. When things are going bad, God's still there. I like that. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. But then he has this little dark moment at the end of verse 14. So that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Now he kind of just goes a little dark here for a little bit. Now I told you he does much better now. He goes a little dark for a while. Now he's like, yeah, when it's good, praise God. When it's bad, remember that God's still in charge. But who really knows what happens afterwards? Now he goes a little dark. Verse 15. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. There's a good godly man who dies young, and there's an old wicked man that lives forever. That's true. And you know why that old wicked man lives forever? Because Second Peter tells us that God is not slack concerning his promise, but he desires that all men be saved. And so a lot of times you see these people that the Lord has let on this earth keep going and going because God loves them. He just loves them. Now, what happens when you see the young one go home early that was righteous? Those are hard. Those are, those are really hard funerals to do. Those are really hard conversations. And I'm going to tell you what I tell the families when they lose a young one. I always tell the parents, I mean, you're talking to a parent that lost a child. I always say, listen, I can't answer why, but I can answer where. I know where your child is. They're in heaven. I know who. I know who loves your child, and that was Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. I know when. I know when you will see your child again. When you get to go to heaven, you can be reconnected with them. So I may not know why, but I do know where. I do know who, and I do know when. But why? Sometimes I don't know why. You go read the book of Job. Job doesn't ever really fully figure out why. We spend so much time and energy trying to figure out why when God says, can you just trust me in faith? Can you just trust me? But it is difficult when you see the righteous perish young and the wicked go on and on and on. So this is Solomon now. Now he's a little bit of a dark face. So please remember as you read through this, this is his take on it. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So if I'm really righteous and I'm really wise, I'm still just going to die. What's the point? Verse 17, do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this. 
And also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. So basically Solomon says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to focus on being really good. I'm not going to focus on being really bad. I'm just going to go right down the middle. Boy, that's the world today. When you start telling them about Jesus, it eventually gets to this point of, I'm not that bad. I mean, I know other people are a lot worse than me. I can remember when I first got saved and just life totally changed. And, and you know, you're that young believer where every, every conversation you have, and I, and I will admit, I was the person that was trying to shove Jesus down everybody's throat. And I remember I had a non-believer come up to me, and I have no idea how they did this. They found Ecclesiastes 7.16. They quoted to me, do not be overly righteous. And what happens is we try to find this middle of the road. What's the problem with middle of the road? Think about what Jesus said about middle of the road in Revelation chapter 3. I wish you were either hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. See, the problem is we, as a society, find middle of the road and we say, hey, the middle of the road's not bad because I'm not really making everybody awkward with my righteousness, but I cannot really make everybody awkward by living too holy and I can still go enjoy this. And I find this middle of the road and really what happens is that's the wisdom of the world. Remember, as you're reading Ecclesiastes, you're reading this from the perspective of a man who is backsliding. You're reading this from the perspective of a man that knows truth that's not living it. And I've said out here many times before, the most miserable people in the world are the ones that know the truth but choose not to live it. They're right there in the middle of the road, right in the fence. So we read that verse, but you got to remember the words of Jesus. He doesn't want you to be middle of the road. He doesn't want that in any way whatsoever. He wants you to be focused on Him and all that we do and all that we say. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise. More than ten rulers of the city. Boy, what a great passage there. Wisdom strengthens the wise. Back to that concept of wisdom and how powerful that is. Proverbs chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, just listen to this. How simple. This is the same author, Solomon. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the works of my mouth. Do not forget her, meaning wisdom, and she will preserve your, her. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom and all you're getting, get understanding. I mean, he's pleading with us. Get wisdom. What is the definition of biblical wisdom? Definition of biblical wisdom is knowing God's way of how he wants you to handle a situation. Wisdom is not just knowing book facts and being able to answer every question on Jeopardy. Wisdom is I know how God wants me to handle situations I'm in. And look at the wisdom we've learned thus far tonight. Wisdom wants me to accept a rebuke. Wisdom wants me to be patient. Wisdom wants me not to respond in anger. Wisdom doesn't want me to live in the past. These are all wise things. Wisdom is knowing what God wants you to do. What else is wisdom? Verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does, not, who does good and does not sin. Wisdom realizes we're all sinners. If you want to go deeper on that, I encourage you to go read Romans chapter 3 with verse 20. There is no one who does good, no, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God, no, not one. But it all finishes up with this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There is no one who does good, there is no one who does not sin. But we're not going to stay there. We're going to realize what Jesus Christ did for us. His love, His grace, His mercy, Him taking the sin away from us. That's what we want to focus on. Well, we want to focus on. Verse 21, also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. 
Okay, I'm going to say this very, very lovingly. I actually practice this, okay? If you are here tonight, and you might be possibly remotely a little thin-skinned, this is a good verse for you. Do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart is known that even you have cursed others. I don't know how many times over the years I've had somebody come up to me sad, bothered, angry, frustrated. I heard that so-and-so said this about me. And then while they're telling me about so-and-so, they start saying a lot of things about so-and-so. And I'm like, so they're not allowed to say it about you, but you're allowed to say it about them. Wisdom is knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and even if to say it at all. Wisdom sometimes just means keep your mouth shut. Think about this. Very simple. You have outside thoughts and inside thoughts, okay? Keep the inside thoughts inside. That's between you and the Lord. I'm struggling with this person. I need to pray for this person. I don't need to go vent to somebody what everything this person has done because it's just going to create issues. And also I need to realize people say things. That's the sinful world we live in. And the sad part is sometimes Christians say things. Sometimes the people you attend church say things. Boy, Lord, help us all to watch what we say and what we do. So now he finishes this up with the idea of wisdom. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. Stop right there. Remember when we did our first study in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. When he was a young king, God came and said, what do you want? And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And so he was wise. He was wise in science. He was wise in Proverbs. He was wise in everything. So he says, I've got wisdom. But look at verse 23. But it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search, and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness, and and I find more bitter than death. We're going to stop right there. He's searching. He's seeking. And the more he knows, the more he struggles with things. Because what happens is he's searching and seeking wisdom now under the sun. Not the righteous spiritual wisdom of God. What does Paul say in the New Testament about the wisdom of God and who God is? Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. See, Paul says, I'm not going to go to Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to tell you right now. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I'm always a little concerned when I run into somebody who always knows why God did something. I don't know why he does certain things. I don't. In faith, I just trust that good comes out of it. In faith, I trust he's still moving and working. I see Solomon right here saying, I've been the wisest person ever. And the more I learn, the more I realize I can't figure this out. Now, Paul says, amen. There's peace in that. Solomon says, I'm frustrated. (laughs) There's a peace in just trusting the Lord. Childlike faith, Jesus said. And I just encourage you with that. You don't need to know all the details. Because the more you apply finding it out, like Solomon said, the more frustrated he got. Now, we have to do the rest of these verses, and I'm a little concerned. Because look at verse 26. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found 
But a woman among all those I have not found. Truly this only I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. There's not a way to dodge those verses right there. If you're keeping track at home, he insults women twice. So, every now and then I have somebody come up to me, because once again we have five boys, and they say, um, you need to have a girl. And I always want to stop and say, do you know how science and health works? We don't really have a say in that, but thank you for your idea. And, they always, and I always say, yeah, we need to have a girl. And he goes, do you know why? And I was like, why do we need to have a girl? Because girls are different. And so this is what I say now. I say, I know, I come from a long line of women. <laughs> I mean, get the joke, I come from a long line of women. I said, um, I, said I married a woman. I had two older sisters. I, I don't need to have a girl to tell me that girls are different. Women are different. Solomon is writing from a backslidden perspective. And please just remember, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Please just let that sink in. 700 wives and 300 concubines. So when he says in verse 26, I see women being a snare and a net, and it's more bitter than death. He gives a whole teaching, a whole teaching in Proverbs chapter 2 about stay away from the immoral woman. The whole chapter is about this idea of this woman that makes her bed beautiful, brings out the perfume. She stands at her door. The young, naive man walks by and she says, hey, my husband's gone out of town. Why don't you come in, see my new clothes? Why don't you come in and see my new tapestries? Why don't you come in, see my new bed stuff? And Solomon's writing there in Proverbs chapter 2 that that man's walking right into death. Walking right into problems. Now, he's writing from the perspective of 700 wives, 300 concubines. But please also understand what he's writing from the perspective of. Who was Solomon's mom? Bathsheba. What did Bathsheba do? She cheated on her husband Uriah with David, Solomon's dad. And David then had to go have Uriah killed. And David had to go cover it up. So Solomon's also coming from the perspective of, I know what my dad did. I know what dad and mom did. I know where I came from, and I know the problems that that caused. If you go read 1 and 2 Samuel, once you get to 2 Samuel and you see the sin of Bathsheba with David, David's life takes a complete turn from that point forward. Complete turn. He is saying, I saw it personally with my father, and I saw it personally with me that the women became an issue. Now, is this against women? It's not against women in any way whatsoever. It's against the immorality. It's against the lust. It's against that pleasure. It's against that whole thing. Because what happens is he's saying as a man, I gave in, dad gave in, it created problems. Verse 26, it's more bitter than death. End of verse 26, the sinner shall be trapped by her. How was David trapped? You know the story. Bathsheba comes over, spends the night together. Bathsheba gets pregnant. So David calls her husband Uriah back, saying, Hey, why don't you go see your wife? Uriah is so moral, he won't. He says, Men are in the field. Soldiers are in the field. I'm a soldier. Why would I go do that? So he won't. Next night, David says, Best thing I can do is get Uriah drunk and send him home with his wife. So he gets Uriah drunk, and Uriah still won't go be with his wife. So David, step three, is goes to his general Joab and says, put Uriah in the heat of the battle. And then when the archers start shooting at him, retreat everybody but Uriah. So he's left out there by himself to be killed. 
So that's what happens. Uriah dies. Now a year goes by and David has been unrepentant. So now Nathan the prophet shows up and gives David the speech. David realizes he's wrong, confesses his sin, Psalm 51, grace and mercy of God. But there's consequences and ripple effects to that sin. That child dies. David's family falls apart. So when Solomon says, the sinner shall be trapped by her, he knows it personally, and he's seen it in his family. Once again, don't take this as attacking women. It's attacking anything that's outside of God's moral standard of what is right and good. Problems come out of that, and it has ripple effects. Does that mean that we need to retake up stoning? No. Think about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Woman, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? Just go and sin no more. You realize what you did was wrong. You realize it's not of the Lord. Don't go do it again. Learn from it. Walk in grace. Walk in mercy. Walk in forgiveness. Because the Lord is good. And the Lord forgives. What a beautiful thing. But Solomon here is very practically saying, the sinner can be trapped by this. And it can be an issue. And can come back and cause problems. There's no doubt about that. Anybody have any quick questions, comments, or about Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Before we close up. Alrighty. He only used the word vanity a couple times. He didn't, I don't think he said under the sun in chapter 7. He's in a little bit better mood, okay? So, a little bit better mood. We've got a few more chapters. He will get to a few dark times from here on out, but what you see is he's, getting, he's thinking this through. He starts out completely dark. But as he's working through this mentally, as he's working through this in life, you see him by the end of the book start to get that perspective back on God a little bit. Is it where as great as it could be? No, i got to be honest. But you see it starting to come. There's a little bit of light now, and there's some truth that we're getting into that's like, yeah, we can back this up with some good other scriptures here, and we can learn from this. We can learn from this. All right, anybody have any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? All right, if you guys would stand with me, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now, we are thankful for the time to be here. Thankful for all things you've done. Help us to walk in grace and mercy and truth, Lord. The truth of the scriptures. Help us to learn from this. I keep going back to that better. It's better to learn from sorrow and sadness. Help us to learn from those life lessons. It's better to take the rebuke. It's better to walk in patience and not anger. It's better to walk in wisdom and not walk in the past. Help us to truly live that in what we say and what we do. And we thank you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. If you've got anything you want to pray about, come on up here. We can pray. And uh, hopefully we'll see you guys next week.